0: Well, that was quite a quick testimony, wasn't it? Quite a story. And uh, Jim Monroe was with us during one of our Christmas villages a few years ago and uh, performed all kinds of magician stuff and gave his testimony. And one of the things that you may have missed, I I can't remember whether it was said about this or not, but one of the things you may miss, the young lady coming down the escalator was the young lady that donated the bone marrow to him. And so he was meeting her for the first time as she was coming down the escalator. Quite a story, a divine moment, uh, defining moment, certainly in Jim Monroe's life, and we've all had those kind of things. One of the things that we talked about last week in the defining moment that maybe I uh, needed to share with you again is the fact that sometimes defining moments are not always positive. Sometimes they can be negative. You come to a crossroad of decision in your life, and sometimes they're not the best decisions you can make. Such was the case in the story we're about to share with you this morning. But as we open up this passage to Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is performing many, many, many miracles. In fact, he walks on the water. Before that, he fed the 5,000. Then in verses 34 through 36, we see a lot of different miracles taking place. But one thing about Matthew chapter 15, you think to yourself, well, look, we've skipped some passages in the book of Matthew because they're repetitive or whatever the reason as God has led us. Why not this passage? Because we're going to read it and you're going to think to yourself, what in the world does that passage have anything to do with my life? on a practical basis, and I'm here to share with you everything, everything about it, because it talks about the traditions of men versus the word of God. Now, one of the things that we would love to do when we came out of this, come out of this uh, church service this morning is to be able to say, God, here's the Bible. I believe it. In fact, I, I believe all the promises of the Bible, and God's going to promise. You're going to pray. You're going to claim those promises, and all of it's going to come true for you, but that's difficult to come to that point when you're not sure that the Bible is even the Word of God. And we have a struggle with that in our society today, and for many, many different reasons perhaps. One of the things people say, well, I believe part of the Bible, but not parts of the Bible that are politically incorrect. I mean, my goodness, if I claim those kind of things and I really said that I believe them, I'd be ostracized from my youth group or I'd be uh, uh, at the high school or college or perhaps even in, in the business world. And see, I really can't buy into that. And I like the words of Jesus when it talks about forgiveness and love, but I'm not so sure about the stuff about judgment and, and things, passages like that that really points out certain sins, especially the writings of Paul and Peter. I'll just take the writings of Jesus. Other people don't believe anything. It's been known, I was reading the other day, maybe a couple of weeks ago, that atheism now has grown in our country from 6% 15% in this generation. In fact, in the last 10 years as a millennial generation is growing up, but also people that are dropping out of church in their, in, uh, their middle age as well. Just saying, you know, I, I don't really believe it anymore. Some people say, well, the millennials will come back to church just like every other generation. I mean, every generation in college and young adult, they, they leave and then when they have children, they bring them back. And part of that, I believe, really is going to come true, but the experts they're writing the books because they want to sell a book. They've they got to say something real controversial, I guess. And they, they pretty much told us some of them will not come back because they say they don't believe it anymore. I remember a good friend of ours, Don Broker, uh, at Southwestern Seminary back many, many years ago. He came from Michigan. He came down to, uh, to, uh, to school uh, to study theology so he could be a pastor. Went back up into Michigan and has been pastoring there for many, many years. And he told me the story of his his testimony, his journey. And I asked him, I said, well, Dan, uh, Don, how were how you saved? And he shared with me, he said, well, you know, I was a skeptic. In fact, I was, a, I was an atheist, but I really didn't have any philosophical uh, teachings to go behind that. I just didn't, I didn't believe it. I couldn't see how it could be true. But he said, a friend of mine in our neighborhood invited me to come to a Bible study. So I went to his home and we began to study the Bible in this group and we were studying about how the Bible is the word of God. And for those first six or eight weeks, we began to study that, and I came to the conclusion at the end of that study, the Bible was the Word of God, and that just settled it for me. After that, it was just a matter of what the Bible teaches and what I needed to do about it and those kind of things. But the foundation principle to it all was believing the Bible. Now, in this passage, it takes a different approach of what we've taken before. We've talked about the the authority of God's Word. Here, Jesus is addressing some Jewish leaders. In fact, let me just read the passage to you in this the first few verses just to give you the idea of, gee, you're going to be thinking, again, Pastor, you were right. What does this have to do with me? Verse 15, oh, chapter 15, verse 1. Then Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do you disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. You say, well, there you go. I wash my hands before I eat. I mean, I don't want all those germs all over me. It doesn't apply to me. Let's read on. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of the tradition, you have made void... The word of God. You hypocrites, well, did Isaiah prophesy to you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do, they, they do worship me. They, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Basically, he said at the end of it is this. They teach the traditions of men, the things that they've come up with, as though it's really the word of God. And we do that kind of thing today. So I want to look at this passage in this way. I want us to see the confrontation of its authority. <clears throat> I want to see the, that, the fact that we're conflicted with its content. And finally, we're challenged by its purpose, which is a real key to the message, as you'll find out in just a moment. But know this, that we do many things, just like the Pharisees do them, to appease God or try to please him, without really surrendering our heart to God. So this is about the heart and how the Word of God plays into the heart rather than just the traditions and changing the outward things that we do. Confronted by its authority. Verses 1 through 3, we see that the uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, the leaders of the Jewish people, were coming down from Jerusalem and they were coming to Galilee. Now you can just imagine, maybe you can't imagine, but they didn't have cars back then. They, they maybe rode camels and things like that, but basically they walked. So it was a long walk from going from Jerusalem to Galilee. And as they were going there, they had heard about all the miracles of Jesus and his teachings and the fact that he didn't always honor the Sabbath day and all those kind of things they felt like in their, in their mind anyway. And so he was breaking the traditions of men. And so their goal was simply to derail his ministry. They already made up their mind he was not the Messiah. He was not a man of God. And so they're going to prove that to everybody. And so they came and they talked about things of cleansing. Now, let me just say this: that there was an Old Testament law that said before the priests go into the holy place, they have to wash their hands. And the idea was: if I can just think about the tabernacle and later the temple, it's kind of the same diagram. On the outward, called the outer court, Gentiles and Jews could go there. Then the holy place, only the Jews, or rather the inner court, excuse me, then the holy place was where only the priests could go. Finally, in, in the midst of the holy place inside was a place called the Holy of Holies where God resided, the Ark of the Covenant. You know, if you've seen Indiana Jones movie or whatever, the Ark of the Covenant was in there as a the presence of God. So before the priests could go into the holy place, they had to wash their hands. It wasn't they were trying to clean dirt off there. It's a symbolism uh, thing of washing their hands as though they were cleansing their heart as they go into the holy place. Well, we do things like that. We have all kinds of symbolisms in the Christian life as well. Baptism is a picture of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We bat, that's, that's our salvation. It's an outward showing of an inward salvation. But here are the Pharisees later in life during that 400 years of intertestamental period that we call between the book of Malachi of the Old Testament, last book of the Old Testament, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, during that time the Pharisees wanted to get closer to God <clears throat> And do things for God, and appease God, and please God, so they begin to add to the different laws. Now they said, not only do the, the priests have to do this, but before you enter the inner court, as a Jew, you have to wash your hands. And they had a way of doing it. You scooped up the water, and you allowed it to go down to your elbows, and it was a ceremonial thing. And because of that, it became so important to these people to do that, it became the law itself. That's why down here in verse 8 it says, your heart is far from me. The teaching of doctrines and the the commandments of men are now taught as though they were the word of God. And it wasn't just this. He could have brought out the Sabbath laws. In fact, the the most popular thing that they did, the Pharisees as far as challenging Jesus, was to bring out the laws of the Sabbath. You weren't to work on the Sabbath day. That's one of the big ten, big ten commandments. And so they had all kinds of laws to go along with that. You couldn't spit on the ground because that was kind of like plowing. You couldn't travel more than a mile, even though that's really not there either. You just add to and add to. And what they were doing was, as they would put it, put a fence around the law. That's what they would do. We, we don't want you to sin, so we'll put a fence around the law to keep you from sinning. And sometimes that is good. But the fence was becoming the law. We, we have those kind of legalisms in our own um, um, denomination in our own church as well in the history of it. For example, uh, anybody heard of mixed bathing? How it's wrong to go mixed bathing, right? You say, well, of course. Who's going to get in the same tub? That's got to be a sin somewhere, you know? No, we're not talking. What is mixed bathing? Anybody tell me? Swimming. Yeah, that's it. You can't go swimming. Men and women can't go swimming together because you're wearing swimsuits and you might lust after one another, so we're going to put a fence around that. And I'm not saying that's a wrong thing to do. we we got to have holiness in life and all that. People go into temptation. But the problem is, in legalism, the fence becomes the law. Then you put another fence and another fence and another fence. And pretty soon, it becomes so heavy, the Word of God becomes void because you can't tell the Word of God from the tradition. And that's what he's saying. The Word's of no use because nobody's going to believe all that because you know good and well it's okay to go to the beach. And so, therefore, the traditions of men become like the Word of God. As we look at this passage, um, it goes on to say that you break the commandment of God (coughs) for the sake of your tradition. Verse 6, you make void the Word of God, you replace it. That's what it's doing. You make it void, you nullify it, you revoke it because you're, you're trying to replace it with something else. Now, there's a lot of reasons why People say they don't believe the Bible. People, again, say, I believe part of it. Will Rogers uh, has been famous to say, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand because of sin in his life. We look at it and say, well, I I don't want to look at this one. I mean, there's got to be some kind of Greek word that's different or Hebrew word from the Old Testament. It's different to change this interpretation that we've had down through the centuries. It's got to be something different because I don't want to really answer to that. Or you might just say, I don't believe any of it because I don't want to uh, have, I don't want to change my lifestyle. Now, we do this again over and over and over again. How can I appease God? I mean, the world and history is littered with people who have said, I've got to find some way to please God or appease Him and not take my hands off my own life. I've got to do something without having to surrender. I'm going to sacrifice without the surrender. And of course, the Old Testament teaches us to obey is better than sacrifice. But this is what we want to do. What do we do? Well, you know, baptism. Baptism, and I can get baptized. All I got to do is get baptized. I'm willing to sacrifice to get baptized. I'll get wet. I'll get my hair wet. I'll go out there and outside or inside and I'll appear before the whole church. Man, what a sacrifice. But you know, I'm willing to do that. But not take my hands off my own life. I'm willing to go to a confession, whether it's a priest or, or a pastor. I'm willing to lay it out all on the line, but then go out and live the way I want. And, and sometimes living the way we want is, is pretty close to a holiness. We have all these traditions, but we pick and choose. I want this tradition, and I'm going to feel more holy, and I'm going to feel more right with God if I do this, if I don't do the mixed bathing or whatever, I, I'm going to feel better about it, but I'm going to do this over here. I'm going to do this because this is going to make up for this. And we don't don't think about it in terms of dividing things up. We just feel good. We feel cleansed on the inside because of what we do over here that we're willing to do that we don't feel any dirt in our life for not surrendering our life to Christ. But look at what the Bible says, what Jesus said about the Bible. Jesus, in fact, let me just read a couple of verses to you back over in the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Here's what the Bible teaches us. When Satan appeared to him and tempted Jesus three times. Now, just keep in mind, Jesus had been fasting for days, for weeks, and now he's hungry. And, but he answered Satan, it is written. He quotes the Old Testament. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to a holy city and set him apart on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for It is written. Satan says, he will command his angels concerning you and on your hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. But Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him up in a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory. And he said, all these I will give you, you to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is Written, You shall not worship the Lord, or you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Every time. See, mentally, Jesus knew logically that the Bible was the word of God, and that's how he defended himself. He quoted, we understand that his will was wrapped around the will of God and the word of God. He believed it. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he would die on the cross, He was down on his knees and he was praying. The Bible says three times he prayed, Lord, if you can take this cup from me, I pray that you would do it, but not my will, your will be done. And at that point, at that point, he was was trying to say to God, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. Well, he got up from his knees and he was satisfied. The soldiers came to him to arrest him. Peter took a sword, took off one of the soldiers' ears and Jesus stopped him. He healed the guy. Then he stopped and he said, Peter, let it be so for now to fulfill the Scriptures. Now you think about that for just a moment. He was about to die on the cross. And he was still concerned with fulfilling the Word of God. He was into it emotionally. He believed it emotionally. If you remember when he died on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why, is, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting Psalm 22:1, 1. Again, fulfilling the the Scriptures as he took our sins upon himself. One of the things that we fail to remember and think about when we think, oh, I just want to take the words of Jesus, Jesus believed the Old Testament. He believed that the Bible is and was and always will be the Word of God. He said, not one jot or one tittle shall ever be taken away from the Word of God. That's what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. We went over that weeks ago. And so Jesus believed it. Now, we can say other things as well that we've said before over the years. It's grounded in history. You will not read things in history that contradict the Bible. These were actually tribes in the Old Testament. These are actually events. You can go to the Holy Land right now in Jerusalem and visit some of the same places where all this this stuff happened. Then archaeology. You dig and you dig and you get all kind of artifacts. There's never been one archaeological finding that's ever contradicted the Word of God. We can find it in its unique presentation. 1,600 years. It was written over a 1,600-year period. 40 authors from all walks of life, two different testaments. Then we find 66 books, all agreeing, all coming together. It's practical in its application. It works. Now, that's not the only reason you should believe something, but it helps. It's one of the proofs of the Bible. And then also it demonstrates God's love. Now, how do I get that? Well, when you study theological stuff, you come around different views of God. And one of those views of God is a deist view of God. Thomas Jefferson, it was said, was a deist, and he would cut out all the miracles out of the Bible because deists do not believe in miracles. Deists believe God just wound the world up. He made it, then he set it uh, in orbit and left it alone. And we're here to fend for ourselves no answers to prayer, no miracles, nothing, that's that's all that happens. Well, you're looking at me and say, okay, who's to say that it's not? Good question. Who's to say that it's not that way? I mean, after all, there's a lot of times you don't have answers to prayer. It seems like a, a, you know, just roll the dice and maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't to you sometimes. So what about that view? All right, here's, here's the question then. The question is if you have a deist view of God, then what you're saying is God does not want a relationship with you. He really doesn't. He made the world, wound it up, let it go, passes through every once in a while and does something good. He doesn't want a relationship with you. Okay, so he doesn't. Well, wait a minute. But you have the resurrection. You see, the resurrection. Is, is the foundational principle to all of Christianity. You don't have a resurrection, you don't have a, you don't have a religion, you don't have a faith, you don't have a Christianity. All wrapped around Jesus and all wrapped around one event. When he rose again on the third day, he proved everything that he did on the cross was authentic. It was real. It was predicted, it came true. He is the living son of God. Everything that he said, and you can just walk through that in the New Testament. I preached on that last Easter, as a matter of fact. Okay, so if the resurrection's true, and in my research, I'm fully convinced that it is, not trying to be biased here, though I am, but just that it is. And so that means everything he did on the cross for me and you was real. Now, he wouldn't have done that on the cross for us if he didn't want us to have forgiveness of sin and have a relationship with him. So God wants a relationship with us. It proves it. He proves it on the cross, and the cross is proved by the resurrection. So he wants a relationship with us. Well, what kind of relationship is that? I mean, he goes to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and we never see him again. Well, two things. One, he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside your heart the very moment that you trust Christ as your Savior and Lord. And the second thing, he gives us a book of direction, a book of that's going to help us to understand who he is and so we can invite Jesus into our heart. A book that tells us, here's how you grow as a Christian. Here's how you get to know God. You're given a book. And you say, well, yeah, but the book could be right. It could be wrong. I mean, it is practical in its application. There's no question about it. I mean, there, there's places in the Bible, uh, pr- predictive prophecy, for example, is predicted in the Old Testament, came through, tr- true in the life of Jesus, came true in the life of the church, predictive prophecy in the old testament and the new testament coming true even as we live today the signs of the second coming that there's going to be uh, all kinds of uh, trouble in the middle east for example earthquakes we there are more earthquakes in the last hundred years than in all of history put together we're going to have people uh, not only just excusing sin but applauding sin applauding it and we see that in our 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 culture today all kinds of predictive prophecies, and those have come true, but is all of it true? Well, Jesus believed all it was true. He says, not one jot, one tittle will come away from this. It is inconceivable to me that God would give us, his people, a book that they could not trust. Now, some of you here, maybe in the, in the last crowd, this was an easy illustration, by the way, easy illustration. Uh, a lot of our people in the last crowd take, take medicines, okay? they Kind of an older crowd. Um, I take I take uh, I've been taking synthroid, which is a um, uh, a medicine for hyper hypoactive thyroid for thirty years. Now, I go to a pharmacist that I trust. They've already always given me the pills. They always kind of work, you know, and and everything. So, but what if um, I had to change the insurances? And they said, No, this is the only pharmacy you can go to. Oh, I don't know about that pharmacy. It's got a reputation for killing people. <laughs> I'm just. I'm kind of on the fence on this. So I get 30 tablets a month, one a day, and one of those tablets is going to make me sick. Matter of fact, I, I could not think about taking that particular t- tablet and coming out and preach. You know what I'm saying? And there's another tablet there that's going to make me break out all over. I'm, I'm going to appear, appear in the pulpit itching all the time. And there's a third one in there that'll, that's going to kill me. Okay, but that's only three. There's 27 good ones in that thing. 27. Am I gonna waste 27 tablets that cost a buck a piece? I mean, they cost me a dollar a piece. Am I gonna waste 27 just because three are bad? Yes. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna risk my life on something that may or may not be right. Well, why would we want to do that with the Bible? Our, my my whole life is directed by the word of God. If it was only 90% true, then I would probably be 100% in trouble at some point in my life. God has given us a book because he cares about us, because he's saying to us, I want you to know me. I want you to know the past. I want you to know how I worked in the Old Testament, how I felt about sin. I want you to know how I still feel that way about sin, but grace has changed the way I've handled it. I want you to know those things. Somebody says, well, I just want the the words of Jesus. You know, forgiveness and love and stuff like that. I I just want that. Uh, What about the Sermon on the Mount? I know one preacher that cried out one time in a a sermon. He said, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Man, it's tough stuff in there. You're going to cut off your hand instead of going to hell? You're going to pluck out your eye? There's some tough, tough sayings because he was trying to convince the Jewish audience, if they needed a Savior, there's some tough stuff in there. All of it's inspired, folks. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for us even today. Well, what about the conflict? The problem is, you think to yourself, well, the problem is, Pastor, I know what the Bible teaches a little bit. And I, I have trouble agreeing with some of it. I want you to notice in our passage today the tradition of the elders that they will wash their hands. Why would he take this? Because everybody wants to be clean. The reason I believe Matthew put this in there, because the Jewish audience knew that even though they were trying to follow all these laws, they felt unclean. They felt felt a little dirty. It's been in the movies. It's been television, plays. What about Lady Macbeth? She participates in a killing, and all she can ever see was blood on her hands, always trying to wash it off. All of us want to be clean before the Lord, and we try in different ways of doing it, various ways of doing it. We, we do, why do you think so many people are bitter in this world? Have you ever wondered that? They just get more and more bitter as they get older. See, some things happen in their life, and it's true that some people do things to you that make you feel a little bitter, But sometimes we do things to ourselves, and it's amazing how history changes. Revisionist history, I think they call it. You take something that happened five years ago, or even one, maybe one year ago, and oh no, I wasn't feeling that. This is the way I was kind of feeling at that time. You weren't feeling that way. You you messed up. But see, one of the ways we feel cleansed is that we blame it on somebody else. It was their fault. It's my dad's fault, my mom's fault, my cousin's fault, my friend's fault, my business partner's fault, my pastor's fault, you know, the the parishioner's fault, the deacon's fault. It's always someone else's fault because we're trying hard to cleanse ourselves. We do this in philosophy. Karl Marx came up with communism, and he, he was trying to do the mankind a good a good favor. What happened? He believed that the dirt came from the outside. Boy, if you you just cleaned up everything and everybody uh, lived the same way and made the same kind of money, boy, that would just cure society's ills. It did nothing but make them worse. Why? Well, the dirt's on the outside. That's the way religion is. I'm going to clean myself up through rituals, a washing, a confession, a communion service, a baptism without changing my heart From the inside. Again, we seek to appease God in all kinds of ways, any way we can do to cleanse ourselves without the ultimate surrender of our heart to God. He says in verse 8, This people honors me with their lips. You say, Look, I just wanna come. I just wanna be clean enough where I can come and praise God and lift up my hands and worship. I just wanna praise God. But then you go out and live the way you want. And sometimes, again, the way you want is a good life. But you reserve so many things in your life. This is the way I'm willing to live. This is what I'm willing to do, the sacrifice, but not surrender. As long as I can be the Lord of my own life, I will do things to cleanse my own life, and it just doesn't work. My dear friends, how can we pretend to follow Jesus if we do not follow the very foundation of his life? But we're challenged by it. We're challenged by its purpose. In verse 10, it says, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. You know, you can wash, you don't, you don't wash your hands and they're dirty and you eat food. He says, but, but defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. And the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you say this? Well, yeah. He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if a blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us, this illustration. And he says, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes through the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the mouth comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual... And by the way, this is all sexual immorality. Don't tell me Jesus didn't speak about certain sexual immoralities. He covered it all right here. Theft, false witness, slander. These defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hand does not, hands does not defile anyone. You see, what comes out of the mouth, what comes out of the mouth shows the defiling of the heart. But not only that, what comes out of the mouth makes it even more defiled. That's why gossip is so bad, because you hear yourself saying what you already believe, and it just affirms what you believe. And it's more solidified in your mind when you have these things to come out of your mouth. We see the challenge. What is the challenge? The challenge of the Word of God It's to not make us better necessarily on the outside. It's to make us better on the inside. It's to change the heart. This is done through salvation. You receive Christ into your heart. The Word of God is planted within your heart. It bears fruit. It bears a root. It begins to bear fruit in your life. You see the light. The the defining moment comes into your life where you see the salvation experience, you see Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, resurrected from the dead for your sins and for your life and for your relationship, the lights begin to turn on and you respond by receiving Christ into your heart, into your heart, the inner core, the causal core of who you are as a person. What can do this? What can do it? Well, it's definitely not a Bible that you form to agree with you. You know, that's the Bible calls us to change the heart, and to change the heart, you conform to the Bible. You adjust your life to the Bible rather than God adjusting to your culture and your benefit. You think about People say, well, you know, that just doesn't agree with my culture. Think about the Bible for just a moment. Written over a period of 1,600 years, and the last book really was written a couple thousand years ago. Now, this God's written a book that's supposed to apply to every single culture all the way down through history. And it's supposed to apply to them in a practical way. Well, if that happens, folks, you're going to have disagreement with the Bible in every culture because every culture is different. Right now, over in the Middle East, they, they would study the Bible and they'd think, oh, I agree with these things about... Uh, the moral code of life, morality, they believe in that. They believe in the judgment part, a judgment against sin. But they're not too good on the forgiveness and love stuff. In America, we're caught up on the love of Jesus and the forgiveness. And it's not even the word of, of God with Jesus. It's the spirit of Jesus. It's general spirit of forgiveness. We love that, but we don't like the moral code stuff people in other cultures down through the right now we have so many cultures in the world that someone is every culture is going to have a disagreement with the Bible the thing is it's probably going to be a different disagreement what we have with it so what do we do we go and pick and choose and pick and choose and I want this and I don't want that and what we're asking God to do cha- God change your heart how can God change your heart if you're always al- always expecting him to change his we're asking God to adjust to us. So what cleanses us? What can make you clean today? John seventeen seventeen, Jesus said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John fifteen three, Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Psalm 119, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So well, no, what I want, what I want is a relationship with a God that is reasonable, reasonable and practical and would cause me to live without any kind of persecution from my friends. That's what I want. What you want is a relationship without a relationship. Uh, for example, Ralph. Ralph has an nagging wife. Now, this is Ralph, not me and certainly not you. Ralph has an nagging wife. They're always arguing. they always already disagreeing. And so he finds this, this genie's lamp. You've seen, some of you have seen Aladdin. Okay, he just rubs the lamp. Only he gets one wish, not three. And his one wish is, I want to live on a deserted island with nothing but people to agree with me. Poof! He's on a deserted island. He's there. A lot of women, but they're all robots. They're like Stepford Wives, you know, the movie. All robots, and um, they just do anything he wants, and they never disagree with him. Every once in a while, he has this vision of his wife coming and saying, Ralph, you know you ought to do this, this, and he just, he just takes his remote and puts it stop, puts her to a stop. And all through his life now, he has no one to disagree with. Well, that'd be wonderful. That'd be like heaven. No, that, there's no relationship there. And it's not because they're robots. There's no relationship there because there's no conflict. Now, if you have too much conflict in your marriage, your marriage is probably, probably needs some help. But if you don't have any, you don't have a relationship. In order to see our blind spots over a period of time in our life, we've got to have a little conflict. We've got to have some disagreement. We've got to have some challenges. But what we're asking God to do is say, God, I want this kind of appeasement relationship with you really where you stay out of my way and let me do what I want to do and live the way I want to live, but I still want you to be there for answered prayer and when I really need you. You see, we, we, instead of changing our heart and adjusting to God, we want God to adjust to us. Wouldn't it be wonderful today, again, if we could walk out of this room and say, wow, the Bible is the Word of God. I can trust it. Yeah, it's got some parts in there. I'm going to have to adjust too, but wow. The promises of God are yes, yes, and more yes. Mm. What a life that would be. But you can't believe the promises if you're not going to believe the basis of the Word of God. And dear friends, by the way, Jesus never has to adjust to us. He's God. But he set the example for us, and he did. He did adjust. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? And he was kneeling before the Lord, and he said, Lord, take this cup from me. This is the way I feel about it. Take this cup from me. But he knew that unless he went to the cross, we would all die in our sin. We would never have the opportunity to eternal life. We, it wouldn't matter whether we trusted the Bible or not, we wouldn't have him. So he said, Lord, not my will. But your will be done. He adjusted to us to obey his Father and to save us. That's what he's done for you. And he desires to take you back to his original design. and That is to have a relationship with you. That begins by you looking at this defining moment in your life. Unlike the Pharisees, they missed it. They missed missed their opportunity travel so far, already have made up their mind? No. What about you today? Would you miss that defining moment in your life? Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at CrossLifeChurch.com.